0: Has your fuse box gone haywire? Is your water pressure too weak? Or maybe your boiler needs an upgrade? They don't last forever, you know. Well, the good news is that there's a local hero in Dublin for that. So if you're locked out on a Thursday and need a locksmith, take the hassle out of it with localheroes.ie. Our online service connects you with trusted tradespeople in your area and all work comes with a 12-month guarantee backed by Borgosh Energy. Try it out while listening to your podcast. You could get a quote in minutes at localheroes.ie. DNC's apply. Visit localheroes.ie for full details.
1: On the record
2: with Gavin Riley.
1: On News Talk.
2: Uh, the Sunday Independent and the Sunday Times both have the same lead story this morning which is that the to Leo Varadkar has been questioned by Gardi over the leaking of a confidential government document while detectives also took possession of the Fine Gael leader's mobile phone after he handed it over in a major upscaling of the investigation. That's the summary of the Sunday Independent's version of the story which says that Leo Varadkar and indeed uh, the former head of the NAGP Matthew O'Toole have now been uh, interviewed by detectives from the National Bureau of Criminal Investigation who are trying to get to the bottom of the sharing of a deal with the head of the NAGP uh, back in 2019. We know that the DPP is now expected to make a decision on whether to prosecute that in due course. Interestingly the front page of the Sunday Times says that the Gardaí have found what they describe as no evidence to support allegations of the leaking of the document bestowed that that it bestowed any commercial advantage on Matthew O'Toole or the NAGP the now defunct GP organisation that he ran that itself could be material when it comes to any decision by the DPP whether to bring a prosecution or not Uh, the front page of the Sunday Independent has a very happy picture of President Michael D. Higgins who you heard mentioned in the news bulletin with Stephen just a moment ago marking his 80th birthday today he's given an interview to the Sunday Independent Uh, there is quite a different picture on the front page of The Sunday Times because it's a picture of a fairly mournful uh, Queen Elizabeth of Britain yesterday attending the funeral of her husband Prince Philip at the chapel in Windsor. Uh, the front page of the Sunday Times also tells us that Ireland's four Catholic Archbishops have said that they are taking legal advice after the health Minister Stephen Donnelly clandestinely that's their quote outlawed public mass and other religious services in church last week. The Hierarchy's senior members have called for a suspension of what they call a draconian measure. They describe it as a breach of trust and they're looking for an urgent meeting with the minister. This follows the signing of regulations earlier this week which, if it wasn't already, now make it crystal clear that it is an offence for a priest or or anyone of a similar uh, role in another religion um, to hold any kind of public worship. Uh, We might talk about that with Stephen Donnelly when he's with us after 12 o'clock. The Business Post says that insurers are facing a new round of legal action because more businesses are suing over COVID. There's a talk about hospitality firms in particular trying to secure payouts which could help them stay in business amid the ongoing impact of COVID-19. AXA and Contessa have stripped thousands of euro from the value of awards made to policyholders including SMEs and small sole traders. Uh, we're also told in the front page of the business post that the country's highest paid civil servants are a line of a pay rise of almost 40,000 euro each next year as part of the final reversal of the pay cuts which followed the financial crash basically the final unrolling of FEMPI which particularly hit them hard nearly 10 years ago and it consequently means now they're going to benefit quite a lot uh, when that final stage is taken And Michal uh, Martin, the Taoiseach, is also on the front page of the Business Post promising a major stimulus plan for the beleaguered hospitality sector to help it recover once the pandemic restrictions are lifted. And speaking of the lifting of pandemic restrictions, finally for now, the Mail on Sunday. The headline today A Roadmap to Freedom. Cabinet Ministers have revealed a draft timetable for how the country will open up again over the coming weeks and months. The welcome news comes as COVID-19 indicators continue to fall and a more encouraging picture of the vaccine rollout programme emerges. So one minister has told the Mail on Sunday that out outdoor retail and click and collect services will reopen at the beginning of next month that's only a couple of weeks away cabinet sources also indicating that the ban on inter-county travel will be lifted by the beginning of june and this also comes as a new poll for uh, the irish mail on sunday conducted by london thinks or ireland thinks rather <laughs> london thinks uh, ireland thinks uh, which finds that six in ten people back the government's policy of rolling out the vaccine based on age instead of prioritizing teachers and guardie well when it comes to the road of the vaccine by age obviously the world is still reeling a little bit from the disclosure yesterday morning that the Health Minister is considering prioritising those aged 18 to 30. Uh, we're joining the line to go through everything that's in this morning's newspapers by Groning the A, reporter with the journal.ie, and also by Fergus Finley, columnist with the Irish Examiner, a member of the Board of Directors of the HSC, and a former CEO of Bernardo's. Uh, good morning to you both, Fergus. I might start with yourself. There is morning. quite quite a bit written in today's papers about the prospect of changing that rollout and whether ministers are slightly cynical about it. Is there anything that jumps out for you?
3: I, I wish these kind of policy discussions would happen in private um, because the single most important thing about how we manage the pandemic is constancy and consistency in terms of the public message. Um, I, I mean, you know, I think every minister is entitled to put forward a policy proposition um, and and have it explored, and it needs to be explored if, it, you know, if there are complicated arguments in one way or the other. But I think these policy discussions need to happen first and the messaging after, um, I, I don't think it's at all helpful. It's, it's a certain, amount,
2: certain amount to be said that, there, that this is the good thing to be, you know, having a discussion in public so you can have a more informed debate. You can have the public contributing points to this. And if everyone wants the government to be a little bit more transparent, then whatever about how, how hotly contested this might be, at least you have people discussing it out in the open.
3: You know, Gavin, as well as I know, that the, the number of vested interests and special interests around this debate are legion. Um, everyone has an axe to grind when it comes to how we should manage the pandemic um, and and that's why I think the vast majority of people agree that at the end of the day um, we should be guided very very heavily by the public health experts and by public health advice um, and that we should stick to that if it changes it changes and heaven knows it has changed very significantly and very regularly uh, in the recent past um, uh, but the change happens first, and the messaging happens second. Would be would be my strong view of uh, of the way it has to happen. Um, you know, we're all fed up with the pandemic. We're all fed up with the restrictions that uh, that it places on us. Um, uh, I, I I went through the very very pleasurable experience last week of being vaccinated myself for the first time um, uh, at age seventy, um, and. Uh, the psychological uplift uh, that it gives you was immediately tempered, shall we say, by the realisation that I still have to mask, I still have to socially distance. I, there's still a possibility I could attract, it, attract the virus and transmit the virus, and I still have to be as careful as I was the day before. Mm. What, I, what I know now that I didn't know last week was that if I get it, I'm in far less danger, far, far less danger uh, of an adverse consequence. Um, But I can still be a risk to others. So, you know, we have to proceed with enormous care. Um, uh, And and I wouldn't be wildly enthusiastic about um, (laughs) an approach that said, young people are going to be out and about more, they're going to be mixing more, they're going to be socialising more, so let's let's vaccinate them. We protect them, but we don't protect transmission. We don't end transmission by doing that. So, you know, it's it's a very complicated mm. policy argument, and complicated policy arguments shouldn't really be discussed on Twitter and Facebook and, um, you know, all over the place. They should be discussed at the level mm. of some expertise and and, and, and then talked
2: about. Well, I, th- I think there is a place to discuss them on Sunday morning radio shows. But we'd we'll <laughs> park that personal grievance <laughs> for a moment. Uh, let me bring in Grani the Age journalist with the Journal.ie. Grani, I suspect mm-hmm. that it, you might be quite close to, if not within, the age cohort that actually would be the beneficiaries of this. Is there anything that jumps out for you in today's papers on this, and indeed on the idea of spreading out the gap between two Pfizer doses?
4: Yeah, I'm I'm banging that uh, 18 to 30 age group, and I think it's a terrible idea. I think it's awful to to be suggesting something like this, particularly after the government fought for weeks with the, the teachers about why they were changing it from a, a kind of profession based um rollout of the vaccine to an age based one because exactly as fergus said there if you get the vir- if you have a vaccine and you get the virus you're much less likely to get very ill from mm-hmm. it and that's the whole point of the age based approach and then a couple of weeks later we're hearing that the Depart- the minister for health himself has suggested Looking into this now, I would suggest I would be curious as to know uh, where from that information came from, uh, because one another thing I've noticed about the debate around vaccinations and particularly mandatory hotel quarantine is that it has come become very political all of a sudden, and, and we're seeing a bit of a fracture in government between the parties, uh, particularly over mandatory hotel quarantine and the departments themselves, the individual departments over how it should be run. I don't think we should be talking about uh, vaccinating 18 to 30 year olds. I don't think that would get us anywhere any faster. And if we're talking about transmission versus people who are ill, we're being told time and time again, The number of people who are in hospital, that's the real kind of indicator of how serious the situation we're in. If we're vaccinating the older age groups, we're going to keep bringing that number down. I I don't think it's helpful. You know, the the suggestion is to vaccinate them after over 60 year olds are done and the vulnerable, I I assume, as well. Um, That's 40 year olds and 50 year olds can still get very, very ill from COVID-19 and end up in hospital from it. So it doesn't really make any any sense to me.
2: Yeah, uh, well I uh, will park uh, just that idea for a minute I might come back with, with some, some clarity on that in just a few minutes but we're also joined on the line by Dr Gabriel Scali who's the President of Epidemiology and Public Health at the Royal Society of Medicine uh, in the UK. Gabriel, good morning and thank you very much for taking our call this morning. Um, I did want okay. to talk to you about the, the age and second dose actually but just because it was something that both Fergus and gronie have mentioned there a moment ago. You are speaking in today's papers around some of your concerns about exemptions to mandatory hotel quarantine when it comes to people who are vaccinated and this appears to be on the... The basis that the science still isn't comprehensive as to whether a vaccinated person is still also infectious
1: well i think there are two aspects to it first of all vaccination doesn't uh, isn't a hundred percent we know that and some of the vaccines are considerably less in effective than a hundred percent in terms of stopping people getting uh, seriously ill with the the virus uh And we also know that you can still have the virus after you've been vaccinated. But my major concern is that how is the system going to work? We know that when several countries introduced mandatory PCR testing before uh, people could fly, that within within days there were certificates available to be purchased uh, online for a fee uh, to say that you had had a negative test even if you'd never had a negative test so there is there is no mechanism in place to guarantee that whatever bit of paper someone brings from a, 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 another country is actually genuine okay and so, so you're concerned
2: about people then fraudulently claiming that they've got either a vaccine or a negative pcr test and that that you think it needs to be a little less little less watertight little less water, tight, little
1: less water oh, I time. I I, I think it has to be very watertight and, and all, all of these things, anytime you try and put one of these things in place, it can be gamed. You know, mm. anyone who's had uh, uh, teenage children knows exactly how young people can get past requirements to show age-related identification, mm. for example, to get into pubs and things like that. Uh, where there's a will, there's a way. And unfortunately, fraudsters can offer these false certificates uh, and uh, for Uh, PCR testing, and I'm sure there will be a similar problem in Uh, terms of guaranteeing that a certificate is valid.
2: What about the argument about whether someone who is fully vaccinated is actually kind of immune from transmitting the disease to others? Because it seems as if Irish policy is now being drawn up on the basis that once you are vaccinated, it does appear not alone to stop you from getting sick, but also to stop you being infectious to others.
1: I think the evidence is the other way, really, that uh, people who have been vaccinated can get the virus, and we know that because some of the vaccines, for example, in South Africa with the South African variant, are markedly less effective, markedly less effective, and that comes from knowledge of people who've been vaccinated subsequently getting the virus and becoming ill and transmitting the virus. So we know it's it's not watertight. Uh, I, from my point of view, uh, a leaky quarantine system, in whatever way, whether it's eligibility, uh, vaccination certificates, uh, special exemptions, a leaky quarantine system is really dangerous and really unhelpful. And we should learn from the experience of, you know, countries like Taiwan or Singapore or New Zealand or Australia, and they do it really tightly, really well. And exceptions can be made, and people can be, for example, permitted to. Uh, visit sick and dying relatives but with uh, tremendous precautions in place to make sure that they're they're not bringing an infection into the country and what we've got to do is we've got to keep out these variants as long as we can Uh, that's the absolute priority. So
2: basically is it your then your, your clinical view that vaccination does not guarantee that somebody who's coming in albeit fully vaccinated that it doesn't mean that they can't spread a new variant of concern into this country is that that is that the crux of it?
1: Uh, That is the crux of it, yes.
2: Okay. Can I ask you then about the proposal that was floated by the Health Minister Stephen Donnelly yesterday about bringing forward the 18 to 30s? And it's not clear exactly at what point he would propose to bring them forward, but generally the idea being that once you have those who are most at risk... Uh, taken care of, that you would rather do those who are most sociable because they are more likely to be transmitting the virus in lieu of having a vaccine, and that he believes it makes more sense, perhaps, or at least is e- examining whether it makes more sense to do the under-30s before the over-30s. What do you think?
1: Ah, uh, Well, this isn't a, a new idea. It has been discussed since we started talking about who should be vaccinated when, and it depends what the goal of the vaccination programme is the first goal uh, for certainly for covid-19 has to be prevent uh, to prevent serious illness and death absolutely and that is uh, a problem that is uh, demonstrably concentrated amongst people who are either elderly or have underlying conditions But once those people have been vaccinated to a substantial degree very substantial degree Mm. uh, there is a question and i raised this question myself how do you best use what vaccine you have to stop transmission because if you can stop the transmission well then you will protect a lot more people potentially than you might do by giving uh, some other people that vaccine Yeah, so I I presume that
2: the argument might be just to sort of game it out in a real world scenario. If everyone who is over 50, and let's say it is over 50s, if they've all received their vaccines and we know that the the best vaccines are about 94, 95% effective, it would mean that basically one in 20 or so of those older people are still vulnerable to serious disease if they contract the virus. So then does it make sense to vaccinate those who are more likely to be more sociable to stop the transmission? Or does it end up meaning that you are punishing those in the middle tier, those who are 30 to 50, uh, that they are excluded even though they might be marginally more likely to have a, a more adverse consequence from the virus? Uh
1: well, that's a, a pretty stark way to put it. And I'm, I'm not sure that's sort of sinful uh, approach to things, you know, people who are not behaving or not uh, uh, obeying the rules. No, what you've got to do is you've got to sit down, you've got to look at how can you stop transmission of this virus in the in the country? I've been one of the reasons, for example, we have uh, vaccinated and all countries have done it, Healthcare workers, is certainly to keep them healthy. But it's also to protect patients going into the, into the hospitals who don't have COVID. Covid from getting it from mm. very intimate close contact sometimes with with healthcare staff. So uh, there is an issue. You've always got to look at transmission of the virus and how you can stop transmission. And it's uh, I, and it, it shouldn't be a matter of big con- big controversy because uh, I'm sure effort and uh, my public health medicine colleagues will be looking at the issues of transmission and will be going through this very logically to see
2: how best to use this virus, um, the kind of t- vaccine that
1: we've we've got sure
2: can i talk to you very briefly Ed, in the little time that we've got left you are obviously you're, you're based uh, at one of the universities in bristol you're obviously very familiar with the public health system in england at, at the very least england has almost led the world in spacing out the gap between its two pfizer doses the idea being that once supplies are precious you try to get as many doses into as many different arms as possible should ireland consider going down the same route as pfizer becomes more plentiful so that more people can at least have some protection
1: Yes, and the spacing is being done, not just for Pfizer, but for AstraZeneca as well. It was an extremely logical thing to do and the right thing to do. And I'm surprised that uh, more countries haven't followed suit and it may well cost lives not to do it. It's very logical. You get the vast bulk of the protection that you're going to get from vaccination uh, pretty immediately after one uh, vaccine dose. Um, The second vaccine dose is to top that up. And to prolong it. So, uh, but the, but the bulk, the majority of the benefit is from one dose. So if if you have a shortage of if you don't have a shortage of vaccine, it's not a problem. You can stick to the uh, the, the, the target timetable. But if you've got limited supplies, getting the vaccine into as many arms as possible uh you know trump's putting two doses into a smaller number of arms
2: mm, okay fair enough and then the final question i wanted to ask you is because th- there's a lot of uh confusion and some concern in some quarters about what's now being known as the indian variant something which has become a little bit more widely observed uh, in england um can you tell us a little bit more about this this indian variant or is there anything that we should be particularly concerned about is it a variant of concern or is it merely just a mutation that exists from time to time I-
1: I believe it to be a variant of concern. It's got a a double mutation, which uh, seems to make it uh, much more difficult in terms of transmission and much more uh, difficult, perhaps in terms of vaccine. Uh, dodging the, the effects of vaccination. But that's something we've got to keep under control. But if I could just make this one point, as long as the virus is replicating like mad across the world, as it is at the moment, we're going to be in this situation of continual variants coming at us. And that speaks volumes in terms of putting in place really strong quarantine measures. And secondly. Uh, that Ireland should support. And I was very pleased to see Mary Robinson signing a letter with a lot of other former world leaders and Nobel Prize winners uh, saying that we really need a people's vaccine. So we need uh, a temporary exemption from the patent laws uh, covering... Vaccines, so that we can use the completely unused vaccine manufacturing capacity we have across the world mm. uh, to try and get as much of the world vaccinated as possible. That's our best, our best protection against these variants coming at us.
2: OK, Gabriel Scally, President of Epidemiology and Public Health at the Royal Society of Medicine in the UK. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. Uh, we're still joined by groning the A from the Journal.ie and Fergus Finlay, uh, member of the Board of Directors of the HSC. Groening, can I just pick up the point that I was going to, to put to you again before we brought... G- Gabriel in and I will talk about the the gap between doses but when you said that you'd think that this is a bad idea the idea of bringing forward the 18 to 30s is it a bad idea on medicinal grounds or is it a bad idea just because the government spent such political capital trying to defend a new regime three weeks ago and is now already turning its back?
4: Well I would say as well just to add to those possibilities um, it's about trust as well like it, it is a very big Uh, vaccine or a a health public health program that the government is undertaking and you need to keep people with you and if there is an unfairness in in the priority list for vaccines I mean no one would argue up till now that healthcare workers people over 70 the at risk and the very at risk should be vaccinated first it gets murky after that so they've done an age-based program which even teachers say themselves we can see the logic behind this you know we understand why it's being done and you risk Upsetting a very careful balance by saying, well, the people who socialise the most might get vaccinated next. That's a very risky thing to suggest. Or, or, and even if um, uh, if it was just like exploring that option, it is kind of putting, uh, going onto rocky territory uh, which which I don't think is a good idea but in terms of the political capital definitely yes and then because I, I would be surprised if the teachers didn't bring this up in negotiations with the government yeah. but then also on the clinical, uh, clinical side of things um, it, I I don't know I don't really see I mean I don't have the figures that Neffet do and, and I admit that but I don't really see the clinical uh, argument for it either obviously if you vaccinate um, people 18 to 30 18 to 30 year olds that will reduce transmission to a certain extent, which means older age groups might be less likely to get it. Mm. But can you, should you be vaccinating people on the basis that some people aren't following the rules as strictly as other yeah. people?
2: Th- there's, also, there's also, there's the counterpoint that those who are 30 to 50 are more likely to be the parents of school-going children and if schools are a bit of a vector for transmission, even in a limited sense, then maybe it, it makes more sense to to get their mm. parents done first. Uh, Martin Marjoram, by the way, was on News Talk Breakfast this morning. People can listen back to his thoughts on all of this uh, on Newstalk.com. Uh, before I go to a break, Fergus Finlay, you heard what um, Gabriel had to say there about the idea of spacing out uh, the jab slightly longer than is currently done Luke O'Neill is making this argument in his piece today in the Sunday Independence on page 14 and he's also given an interview to Rachel Lavin in the Business Post where he says the government should now begin delaying uh, the delayed dosing programme uh, this coming week it sounds almost like it's it's too good to be true why wouldn't we do it?
3: Well I I, I mean if it's an idea worth considering it's an idea worth considering and it's an idea worth debating uh, at, at the level of policy um, and uh, the same point that applies, I think, that I made earlier, which is let's discuss the policy first and let's talk about it afterwards. Um, the, the only reason we're having all of these arguments uh, about age and second doses and so on is because we know we don't have enough vaccines. The HSE has been operating to a kind of unwritten rule. Um, it's kind of a, you know, sacred tenet of the HSE that as soon as a vaccine lands in Ireland, our job, the HSE's job, is to get it into people's arms as quickly as possible. Mm. And they have done that remarkably effectively. Despite the fact that the rules have changed again and again and again. Uh, the 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 vaccine program has had to be reorganized because of, you know, changes in uh, from NIAC and from yeah. Europe and so twenty three times but I think the minister It's had said to be week, reorganized yeah. twenty three times. And it has been reorganized so effectively that we are still Getting rid of the vaccines in the right way within two or three days of them landing in Ireland. And every change puts more pressure on that target um if i mean if we had enough vaccines to go around we wouldn't be having any of these discussions we'd all be just queuing up somewhere and and getting our shots but you don't um, understand
2: why if, as long as vaccines are precious that people want to use them in whatever way allows society to reopen as fully and as comprehensively as possible
3: yes and and i think the the luke O'Neills uh, and uh, the sam mcconkeys and uh, the nephids and the Nyaks and they have Proved their worth in terms of, uh, you know, the ideas that are worth listening to and the ideas that are worth discussing. Um, and and if, if you know if Luke puts forward a proposition, then I think it deserves serious consideration. But I'm not the expert who can say it's the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. Um, I I I think that is ultimately. Um, a public policy, a public health policy decision, um, which should be made at the level of public health policy. um, And then we should get into, you know, it would make the HSE's job an awful lot easier Mm. um, if we were mandated to just do first vaccines for now. Um, But I don't know what that, Means in terms of the risk profile. I don't know what that means in terms of, you know, uh, putting more people in jeopardy. I I I need p- experts to answer those questions. Uh,
2: Liam has been on Twitter on the record. #nt is the hashtag. He says that Gabriel scally zero COVID view on transmission is at odds with the most recent and the Neffet accepted wisdom on the issue. And indeed it is. And I did put it to Gabriel Scally that Ireland's policy was now being drawn up on the basis that vaccination stops the spread as well as disease. But you know, he's the the president of public health and epidemiology at the Royal Society of Medicine, and I'm just some lad who hosts a radio show on a Sunday morning, so it's difficult for me to counteract him. We'll talk to Stephen Donnelly about that uh, a little bit later. In the meantime, Fergus Finley from the board of the HSE and columnist for the Irish Examiner and Gronin the A, reporter with uh, the journal.ie are both with us in studio. Uh, there's a lot written today about mandatory hotel quarantine and some of the, the frailties and difficulties and controversies that it has had uh, over the course of the last week. Gronin, I'll start with yourself. Is there anything in the papers that jumps out for you?
4: Yeah, and um, there's a column uh, by Tony O'Brien about it, where, where headlined with a very product, provocative t- title: "Our quarantine approach seems designed with failure in mind." And you wouldn't blame him for writing that headline when we look at the history of it. It's only been in place three weeks, and it's been, you know, uh, there's been a some sort of loophole or you know uh, problem or diplomatic issue every. It feels like every day since. Um, He makes an interesting point, though, in it that that this is run by the Department of Health, Mm. which he says is kind of a bizarre stance, when it should be justice and, and foreign affairs probably together running it, because it is a border issue rather than, although it is related to public health, as everything is at the moment. That kind of speaks to those political tensions between departments over this issue, that it seems to be coming from health and other departments are wary about it, but... That is leading to some of the problems that we're seeing that, you know, we have uh, people who want to go abroad for very valid reasons. And there is no body or no board to appeal for for an exemption. You know, it's Mm. it's kind of a haphazard, uh, done in a haphazard way and pursued in the courts because there is no formal method of doing it. I, I spoke to a couple of Israeli citizens who said that in Israel, there was kind of a ban on travel into the country but you could apply to a board or a committee to say I need to come into the country for medical reasons or or what have you and I have a negative test and all that and they would uh, weigh up appeals and allow some and not allow others and there isn't a kind of a, uh, uh, a kind of a A system like that here, basically, that people can apply to, which is part of the problem. And then the other problem is, obviously, the departments are warring with each other rather than working together to make it work smoothly
2: it may be an old-fashioned view Tony O'Brien writes in that piece today but surely when a government makes a decision and adopts a policy on the basis that it protects public health it ought to be implemented rigorously with whole of government commitment and above all urgency we simply haven't seen this in Ireland as certainly the the whole of government uh, approval isn't there Uh, I know by the way uh, Ferguson maybe this is a point that I thought that you might share that I think there is some means through which you can appeal for a humanitarian exemption but the most common humanitarian exemption that a lot of people would put up if they needed to try and get around mandatory hotel quarantine would be that there's been an unexpected death or a funeral at home and they need to get home to their grieving families and there seems to be a flat rate policy that that simply doesn't count which which almost makes you question why there would be humanitarian exemptions at all
3: I think groner's point though about having an advanced um, system a system in place where, whereby you can apply before you get here mm. is probably the, the correct way to go about it I mean, look, we 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 invented overnight. Like we've done an awful lot of stuff, you know, uh, in in the course of this pandemic. We, you know, we we went from nowhere to spending billions on uh, PPE. We went from nowhere to spending billions on um, uh, ICU equipment and um, uh, you know the kind of equipment that needed to keep was needed to keep people alive. We did an awful lot of stuff on the hoof overnight. Um, and undoubtedly, undoubtedly, you make mistakes when you're doing that. Um, and you can't you can't create systems from the ground up. You know, we, we've and it takes a while to get these things right. Now, I think we've got much more right than we've got wrong. Um, but I don't quite get the the, the fuss about mandatory hotel quarantine. Um, everyone who wants to come to Ireland it, I mean, and Gabriel Scally made the point himself in a slightly different context that it's very, very easy to come up with, um, you know, the fake ID or the fake reason or whatever. Mm. Um, everybody who wants to come to Ireland wants apparently to come for a really, really pressing reason. Um, people need to understand uh, that for sensible, good health reasons, we have to limit people coming to Ireland, and if you come you have to accept the notion of a mandatory hotel quarantine. Now I I totally understand. I mean there was a really moving situation of a man in quarantine mm. whose father was at death's door. Um and and I totally get that. I mean there's nothing more painful than being, you know, within a fingertip reach of your of your father and you still can't touch his finger. Um uh, as as he's as he's leaving the world. Uh, I I understand the pain of that. But But the risks of variants and the risks of, you know, disease coming into the country are so great Mm. that you just have to be hard. And, you know, there's like Australia and New Zealand, they're often talked about as examples and, and so on. One of the things they did at the very beginning was just clamp down completely on inward travel mm. uh, to both countries. Well, they just clamped down completely. But there y- were no humanitarian y- y- exemptions. You could
2: argue that, like that that doing the same thing now would be closing the, the stable door long after the horses bolted because, you know, it. there is a, a primary variant here. Um, there is one kind of obvious issue and though. It's with it's
3: typically Irish though, isn't it, Gavin? That, you know, there was pressure and pressure and pressure to do this and the minute it was done there's now pressure and pressure and pressure to undo it. Um, not, there's you know, not
4: pressure to undo it, in fairness. It, like we, I think a lot of people would accept and wanted mandatory hotel quarantine at the start of the year, remember, when restrictions were really, really tight and they couldn't go down the road and let people were flying into the country and that didn't sit well with people. So they brought it in and as well, we had to wait for Uh, The UK to do something similar because of the situation in Northern Ireland, which is, you know, that in the EU is why we can't really compare to New Zealand and Australia. On on the the EU topic,
2: because uh, sorry, if I could put a question to Groni, because this, I think, is one of the major issues with the policy around mandatory hotel quarantine. It seems that we have different criteria that we add non-EU countries for onto mm. the list for uh, versus those that are added from the EU. They're basically, we only add European countries if they've got a variant and it doesn't matter how much COVID they have overall. Whereas countries outside of the EU get added purely on the basis of the likelihood of you carrying COVID when you come back into the country and that doesn't seem fair.
4: No, it, it, it doesn't. Uh, I, and I don't know why that is. I, I, I wonder if it's a yeah. kind of a legal issue to do it because they talked about um, whether it was legal to allow certain things and I suppose if, if you're bringing in another variant the, or the, the same type of covid that we have here, maybe that that's deemed as less of an issue than a variant. I do think though mandatory hotel quarantine will stand to us if if we implement it properly. Uh, when variants do become more of an issue once everybody's vaccinated. Mm-hmm. um but so so that is kind of something to bear in mind. And we've seen with all this debate around mandatory hotel quarantine, the break out of uh, the South African variant in London, and as, as was mentioned before, the Indian uh, variant as well has kind of justified why the system is in place. if it manages to keep it out, you know that there was mention of at the Ne briefing this week about the South African variant. And they said they were watching it closely, but they were sequencing any cases associated with travel so that they know what is a variant and what's not. If Mm. there is a positive case coming into the country, that's how the system is being used at the moment, which is kind of like an important next step I suppose once we're, we have the vast majority of people vaccinated, variants are going to be our next big problem with this pandemic.
2: Yeah, uh, there was one um, interesting humanitarian case I think that came to light on Friday and I wouldn't be surprised at all if this was a case that unfortunately ends up before the courts uh, during uh, the week to come. Uh, my colleague Zara King was was talking to this lady uh, on Friday, her name is Ashley McCarthy, she is a single parent, she lives in Dubai. Unfortunately her family had an unexpected and very tragic bereavement where her only sibling uh, died in her sleep unexpectedly during the week. She's trying to get home. She now knows that she is exempt from mandatory hotel quarantine because she lives in the UAE and she's been fully vaccinated. But she's a single parent. She can't leave her six-year-old behind and her six-year-old is not fully vaccinated and there is genuine ambiguity as to whether she would still have to observe mandatory hotel quarantine because of her unvaccinated child or whether there would be some kind of exemption. And unfortunately, there was no clarity from anyone in government as to whether that would apply and she may have to possibly fly home, enter quarantine and then go to the High Court simply in order to be able to go home and to be with her family when they're grieving. Um, There is a piece on page 10 of today's business post where the Finnegal TD, Neil Richmond, says Ireland should apply to join the Commonwealth in advance of any border poll as a gesture of goodwill towards unionists. This is from uh, Neil Richmond, Dublin Rathdown TD, who's going to make the call in a speech to Cambridge University's Sydney Sussex College tomorrow as part of its ongoing discussions uh, on, on the future of Ireland and the possibility of unity. Uh, Fergus Finley, this is an idea which gets a lot of people upset. They see it as being sort of a cowtowing or a bootlicking or a, a tugging of the forelock that of all the international associations that we would not want to rejoin, that the Commonwealth is probably one of them. What do you think?
3: I just think... The silly season isn't supposed to start till July or August. Um, uh, This is a silly season question though.
2: We've been talking so live about the prospects of a united Ireland and how you prepare the ground for that. Is it not a perfectly legitimate question to put?
3: Oh, I'm sure it is, but it's such a pointless idea. It's not going to happen. We all know it's not going to happen. What's not going to happen?
2: Rejoining the Commonwealth?
3: Ireland is not going to rejoin the Commonwealth and um, if you put it to the vote of the people, you'd be lucky to get 10% of the people to vote in favour of rejoining the Commonwealth. Um, I, I... the great loyalist, um, David Irvine, years and years ago said to me, I utterly respect your sense of Irishness, completely and absolutely respect your sense of Irishness. Irishness. You must not ever seek to make yourself feel more Irish by making me feel less British. Um, and that rang an extraordinary bell with me. We could join the Commonwealth in the morning. It's not going to have the faintest impact, not the slightest impact. On um uh, people of unionist persuasion in this island, they're not going to think, gosh, they're respecting our Britishness by more by becoming a little less Irish themselves. It's just nonsense. It's it's not going to happen. I I have no idea what impact it would have and how it would complicate our relationship with the EU. I suspect it's bound to have if it has you know, that has positive uh, effects on our trading relationship with Britain, it's bound to have complicating effects on our uh, trading relationship with the EU. So why wh- 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 would it have that? I mean, that? Is, is, kind of is
2: the Commonwealth not basically just a kind of a political club that doesn't have any kind of real sense of sovereignty? Like it's not a trading bloc, there's no pe- sense of power, there are no Commonwealth courts, it doesn't have any of the same structures as the EU. So, so, is so what's
3: being suggested here, let's do a tokenistic, an entirely tokenistic thing that has no meaning, no impact, uh, no relevance, Means nothing in the modern world. Are we, is that what is seriously being suggested? And that that is going to make a difference in relations between the north and south of this island? Give me a break, Gavin.
2: Uh, Graña, any more hospitable take from you?
4: <laughs> that was a very enjoyable. Take. <laughs> I, I think it's interesting in the uh, the column or in the piece in the Sunday Business Post that it said there would be diplomatic, trading, and sporting opportunities for Ireland. I don't know. To so the Commonwealth
2: Games, basically, that's, that's about yeah. the height of it.
4: That is it, because diplomatic and trading-wise, I don't think we can do better than the EU, really. And and the point is made, you know, of the 54 Commonwealth nations... Only six. The Queen's only head of sixteen of them mm. to try and make it a bit more palatable to
2: well, people. I know, think there, which, there's probably a sense that people think that rejoining the Commonwealth means accepting the British Crown as your head of state, which, as you point out, is not true for two thirds of its members. Yeah,
4: but, but also as Fergus was saying, there it is symbolic of the British Empire, and it is it was called the British Commonwealth, and they had a rebrand, you know, a couple of years ago to cr- try and make it more palatable. But you know. A, I would wonder how important that would be to unionists, first of all, you know, as a gesture of goodwill, it's a pretty big one. And I don't know even how important it would be to unionists rather than more practical things like job opportunities mm. in Northern Ireland uh, and kind of access to to kind of um, further learning or better uh, you know, better integration, I suppose, in the community. Those I think matter a bit more than the high, lofty diplomatic institutions. That, particularly, as Fergus said, it doesn't hold a lot of relevance in today's world uh,
2: anymore. Yeah, well, I suppose it, it is a very fair question as to whether it would matter a jot. I'm always tickled by the idea that Ireland is an associate member of La Francophonie, which is supposed to be the international fraternity of f- French-speaking nations, of which we are definitely not one. While uh, <coughs> the Commonwealth I didn't of know Nations, that, yeah, well, I didn't as associate know membership. Apparently, I think it was supposed to be as a staging post towards membership of the UN Security Council a couple of years ago but I think the Commonwealth of Nations you know, problematic and all as it might be is probably a more natural fit than Ireland being an associate of La Francophonie um, Grony, you've done a lot of work though in reporting on Anglo-Irish Except relations
3: when it comes to wine and cheese now Gavin
2: to be fair Well you speak for yourself I tend, tend to, like, tend to be more of a nationalist when it comes to uh, wine and cheeses or at least uh, craft beer and cheeses um, Grony, you've done a lot of work when it comes to Anglo-Irish relations in the last yeah. couple of years the hot topic that they've been in light of the UK's decision to leave the European Union in 2016. There was a lot of reaction yesterday to the tricolour being flown at half-mast on state buildings to mark the funeral of Prince Philip. There are some people who think that it's simply the act of a good neighbour and that irrespective of whether the Brits would ever return the, the gesture that it's just a nice thing to do, that Britain is in a period of mourning, why not just lower the flag? There are others who think possibly because the Commonwealth of Nations would be so problematic that you can't disentangle today and Britain and the UK and monarchy from all of the questions of colonialism and that you're simply just better off not doing it. Where where, where do you think we should stand on this? Uh,
4: I think it's definitely um, like I wish we would have those kind of conversations when it wasn't about flags and anthems. You know, I I think the post-Brexit relationship with with England in particular and, and the UK more generally hasn't really happened yet you know I was watching a, a briefing with uh, David Liddington uh, a couple of weeks ago who said that maybe we could swap civil servants and um, as a kind of a, a kind of every you know for a, for a short amount of yeah. time to kind of integrate the systems a bit better because we won't have the EU where ministers meet and discuss policy issues and ideas and that kind of thing which is kind of important um, and I suppose there are mechanisms around Northern Ireland that ministers meet but that is a uh, uh, very mm. tightly framed around the north, but but, but they,
2: on on the whole thing of the flag and and the gesture of whether you can disentangle the the lowering of the flag with yeah. the questions of of the role that Britain has had for better or worse in this country.
4: We we did um we did a series recently about a shared island on, on the journal, and we asked people. A lot of people had questions about the flag, basically, and 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 what it means. Uh, you know, any in, in the case of United Ireland, would you change the flag? Would you change the anthem and that kind of thing? It mm. is important to people. Uh. But I I think it kind of speaks to um, the the lack of um, uh, self-reflection from the UK about its history in general that we saw a little bit during the Black Lives Matter movement, but not really. I think those kind of... um, Incidents where people get their backs up because Ireland is kind of showing being the bigger nation, essentially by mm. lowering the flag to half mast. It just kind of shows that Ireland doesn't feel that the UK maybe has done the reflection on its history that that kind of war that needs to happen for a more kind of mutual approach uh, diplomatic relations kind of closer integration between the two regions
2: one common strain that i saw in uh, in some of the online reaction yesterday fergus was the idea that um you know i I mean I, i even put the idea out there that you know this is a shared island there's another jurisdiction on the island and although you might have aspirations for there to be unity for as long as there is another jurisdiction, and that jurisdiction is in a period of mourning, what harm in lowering the flag? And then there were other people who thought, but no, it's not the act of a neighbour, it's an act of subservience, and particularly when you look at the monarchy and everything the UK has done, that for all the countries that you wouldn't lower the flag for, that the UK would be it, and that uh, a member of the royal family who isn't even the sovereign themselves would not be it. Is this the sort of thing that we do need to tackle before there's any question of unity, or is it just the sort of thing there's never going to be an agreed position on, so why bother?
3: I, I I mean, this is the sort of thing we need to be human about. Um, I I live uh, very quite close to an undertaker's, and there's no, you know around the corner from my house. There's an undertaker's, and it will happen when you're walking down to the shop that a hearse is just pulling out, and a very sad family uh, is walking behind it. And the least you can do, you haven't the faintest idea you know, who, who's grieving and why they're grieving. But the least you can do is stand mm-hmm. respectfully while the hearse passes by. And that's all that we do when we lower the flag. It is, this, it, it, I, I mean, could you imagine, if God forbid Michael D. Higgins were to die in office, there would be, and, and we weren't in COVID and so on, mm. there would be a state funeral um, because it's part of the tradition for a president in office. Mm. Um, could you imagine what how, you know, some of us would get up on our high horses if the British decided that they weren't going to be represented. But not to get into into, into what
2: about isn't though, but the the funeral yesterday was not a state funeral and nor was it the head of state. No, Um, I know.
3: I know it was none of those things. It was just an old man being mourned by his loving family. And we, we did the polite and courteous thing of lowering the flag. What the hell is wrong with that? What is wrong with people that they would object to something Uh, like that? It's very, it's it's absurd. The man Um, who
2: resides in one of the houses that lowered the flag yesterday is today celebrating his 80th birthday in Mm Fergus. We've got about 60 seconds left. Obviously, you have a shared party affiliation. You were chef de cabinet when Michael D. Higgins was in government. Your reflections on his his decades of public life? I tried to
3: stop him being elected. I sought the nomination instead of him. (laughs) And didn't the Irish people um, dodge a bullet there? Um, I I mean, we've been very lucky. The the last three presidents we've had in Ireland have pushed out the boundaries of the office, have made the office far more meaningful. It's hard to remember in some ways what a sinecure uh, it was and was regarded as. Um, And uh, Michael D has been just, you know, a model, just an absolute exemplary president. I suspect he spent the last year utterly and completely frustrated because it's not, um, you know, like, there must be a role that a president can play in terms of national morale at a time of crisis, and and COVID has pre- prevented him from doing that uh, in a, in an effective way. And I imagine that's been a source of terrible frustration. But I I, I would suspect, um, you know. Um, 99% of the people of Ireland um, would want to wish Michael D a happy birthday and many more years uh, I, thought, I don't want them having a state funeral
2: I think I think I noticed somebody in, in one of yesterday's papers likening the reaction that he'll have when he is allowed back to go the full duties of his job as a little bit like a, a cow that's been locked up for winter and just desperate for a bit of sunshine and, and open grass uh, but if that isn't too crude an analogy to talk about the head of state we will leave it there uh, Fergus Finley, columnist with the Irish Examiner and growing the A reporter with the journal.ie thank you both very much
1: on the record with Gavin Riley on News
0: Talk. Has your fuse box gone haywire? Is your water pressure too weak? Or maybe your boiler needs an upgrade? They don't last forever, you know. Well, the good news is that there's a local hero in Dublin for that. So if you're locked out on a Thursday and need a locksmith, take the hassle out of it with localheroes.ie. Our online service connects you with trusted tradespeople in your area and all work comes with a 12-month guarantee backed by Borgosh Energy. Try it out while listening to your podcast. You could get a quote in minutes at localheroes.ie. DNCs apply. Visit localheroes.ie for full details.